I'm Christina Onestead with KPFA News Headlines. It's Indigenous Peoples Day today. Nearly 20 states in the nation recognized the day, once called Columbus Day. In California, indigenous tribes and allies gathered at Alcatraz Island, site of a Native American takeover of the abandoned former prison to reclaim the land in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Andrea Carmen is executive director of the International Indian Treaty Council. We are un on unceded Ohlone territory, and we want to welcome... Um, everybody uh, to this sacred land that has never been given up and never been conquered uh, and we give that respect to our Ohlone relatives today. 17 states celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day across the U.S. South Dakota calls it Native American Day. It's also the 20th annual World Day Against the Death Penalty. In California, advocates are using the day to call on Governor Gavin Newsom to end the use of life without parole, calling it a death by incarceration sentence. They're calling for the more than 5,200 sentences to at least be reviewed by a parole board for possible release. Cheryl Lamar is with the California Coalition for Women, or Pris Women Prisoners. She was given two life sentences for a double homicide she was present at but did not commit and was later granted parole. Commu her sentence was commuted by Governor Gavin Newsom. She says the life without parole is used disproportionately against people of color and youth. Most of the people that you see are, are like uh, black, brown, and young people, you know, are people survivor of domestic violence. This is another thing, but the sentence of LWAP is very inhumane, you know, and it, like again, you slowly die in prison. So what's the difference between LWAP and the death sentence? You're still, you're still dying in prison. According to the Coalition for Women Prisoners, the U.S. has more than 80 percent of the world's life without parole sentences. California is one of five states with nearly 10 percent of those sentences in the country and nearly 40 percent of youth serving life without parole prison sentences in the United States. Russia's doubling down its attacks on Ukraine with a lethal attack against multiple cities, smashing civilian targets, killing at least 11 people, knocking out power and water, and shattering cars and buildings. Ukraine's emergency services said at least 11 people were killed and 64 wounded across the country in the morning attacks today, the biggest and broadest since the early days of the war. One Russian missile hit a playground in downtown Kiev, and another struck a central building of a local university. President Vladimir Putin warns it's just the beginning and says it's retaliation for Ukraine's attack on a bridge in Crimea late last week. It is impossible not to respond. This morning, massive strikes took place on air, sea and land against energy and military targets against Ukraine. If such attempts by Ukraine continue, there will be harsh responses. The United Nations have has blasted the attacks. According to Ukraine's general staff, 84 cruise missiles and 24 drones were used in the attacks. Ukrainian forces shot down 56 aerial targets, it said. In Los Angeles, calls are mounting for three city council members and the 
Labor Federation president of L.A. to resign after a leaked recording from an anonymous source shows racist comments and possible corruption, including gerrymandering a district and leveraging control over the airport. Protesters rallied outside City Council President Nuri Martinez's home Sunday, playing back the recordings of her comparing her colleague's black child to a monkey and making other anti-black racist statements. She is resigned as president, but the Los Angeles Times reports she will still be on the city council. In another comment, council member De Kevin DeLeon, a former state senator, is heard comparing his colleague Mike Bonin's child to a Louis Vuitton handbag. Bonin is white, his adopted son is black. Nalio, the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials, called for Martinez to resign, calling her words appalling, heartbreaking, and unacceptable in a statement. It said words matter and we cannot turn a blind eye to anti-black or homophobic sentiments, unquote. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for KPFA. Please join us at 6 for the hour-long Pacifica Evening News. against the grain. How should we understand the ecological crisis accelerating around us? In a book that has sparked debate on the European left, Ulrich Brand and Marcus Wissen trace the origins of the Western mode of production and living, which is now spreading around the world. They connect such resource and emissions intensive consumption to the political instability of our times and point to alternatives beyond capitalism. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. It's hardly revelatory to point out that the kind of consumption typical of wealthy countries like the United States isn't sustainable. Based as it is on the massive use of resources and the massive generation of emissions. But that often leads to the conclusion that as individuals, we need to make different lifestyle choices. My guest today, however, argues that we need to look at the way we live through the lens of capitalism as an economic system and the particular relationship that it has fostered between the global north and the global south. Ulrich Brandt is professor at the University of Vienna and co-author with Marcus Wissen of The Imperial Mode of Living, Everyday Life and the Ecological Crisis of Capitalism, published by Verso. Uli, your argument revolves around the idea of an imperial mode of living. Can you first define what a mode of living is for us and then what makes it imperial in this, in this particular case? We understand a mode of living uh, at difference as a lifestyle. A lifestyle is something that we can observe, that people choose something, a, a certain car, a certain home, uh, a certain uh, um, customs of traveling, of eating, and so on. And the mode of living is more the structure, how people overall live, how they uh, consume, how they um, commute, how their mobility, the food system. So the mode of living is, uh, in a general way, how people 
um, reproduce their everyday lives through consumptions, but also through work. And this is produced. Yeah, The cars are not only used, but we need an infrastructure for the cars. We need a production system, a globalized economy to get the materials for the cars, etc., etc. This is, if you like, the pattern, the dominant pattern of production and consumption is indicated as a mode of living. And, and then, of course, there are also alternatives. And we add the, the term imperial to indicate that these normalized everyday patterns of production and consumption in the US, in Europe and elsewhere is based in principle uh, on an unlimited appropriation of resources and labor capacity of both the global north and the global south. So if people use in their everyday life a cell phone or if they eat meat and this meat is produced or the, the animals are raised with soybean from Brazil, they have this access to resources, to labor capacity from China in the, in the case of the cell phone or uh, to Brazil in, this, in, the, um, in the case of soybean. How does looking at things through the lens of an imperial mode of living help us understand the multiple crises that we're experiencing? And we could list a whole number of them, political, social, ecological, etc. First of all, we want to emphasize that the mode of living makes invisible, invisibilizes and normalizes the violent character of the capitalist mode of production and living. So first of all, our argument is that it's not present, that people live their everyday lives, not because they are bad or they, they have bad intentions, but this is the reproduction of the everyday life. But in principle, global capitalism is highly violent, is um, exploiting nature, exploiting people, etc., etc., And that people are forced into this mode of living, into these patterns of production and consumptions, because they are in a subaltern status, they have to sell their labor power, they have to consume at an everyday level. Of course, they have some choices, but in principle, they are part of this mode of living. We started to reflect and to develop the concept, not by chance in the crisis of 2007 and 2008. And Marcus and I, we work um, in globalization studies, we are political activists and we are in the, in the social ecological movements and debates. And we asked ourselves why despite the high politicization of the climate crisis, of the ecological crisis, the high politicization of North-South um, uh, relations and polarization, why crisis policies at this time were stabilizing the existing economy. For us, the, the best example in Europe were the so-called scrapping bonuses, that the state, uh, the governments, gave the car holders in um, Germany 2,500 euros, in Austria 2,000 euros, to give up the existing car, to just to, to scrap it, to let it scrap, to buy a new one, in order to stabilize uh, the, the automotive industry and the automotive system. So then our argument is that in a moment of crisis, the 2007-2008 crisis, um, the crisis mechanisms are in a sense stabilizing the traditional or if you like the dominant economy but at the cost of deepening the, cri the ecological crisis and not to, to ta not taking seriously the, this politicization or this if you like um, um, obvious need for action to counter the ecological crisis. 
So we argue that the multiple crises, the crisis of um, the economic crisis, the crisis of reproduction, the crisis of democracy and representation, if you like, but also the ecological crisis are interlinked, but we have to look very carefully how specific crisis policies, if you like to rescue the economy, now the same in the coronavirus crisis, we will come back to this probably, um, how certain policies to, to stabilize the economy, to stabilize the mode of living of everyday people, of, of the ordinary people in their everyday lives, is taking place at the cost of nature, at the cost of a further destruction of the environment. And following the crisis that you just mentioned, the global financial crisis of 2007-2008, instead of a shift toward addressing the ecological crisis, we have seen instead different other patterns of trying to uh, shore up the system, as well as the rise of the far right in places like Germany, where you come from, like in the US, in Brazil. How do you understand the rise of the far right in the context of the way you see it through this lens of an unsustainable mode of living in particularly or especially the global north? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a very interesting uh, question. We would argue that the dealing with the crisis of the dominant forces, the crisis of 2007, 2008, but also, if you like, the, the so-called refugee crisis or the refugee movement from 2015 take place under the control of dominant, dominant forces and the neoliberal globalized economy and the related um, power relations are not questions. The polarization, the social polarization um, increases. People live in fear. People are put to live into, in, in fear. That in Germany, for example, the flexibilization of, uh, of the labor market, the, the labor market reforms by the red-green government 20 years ago, the so-called Hartz reforms, put people much more at risk to, to um, be unemployed and to, um, yeah, to, 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 to fall, fall out of the system. This produces fear. And this is one aspect that the far right pro um, um, proposes or also um, Says, tells the people, so if you vote for us, we will um, try to get to, to, to reorganize our societies because there is one uh, um, cause of, our, of the uneasiness, one cause of the problems, which are the refugees, which are the foreigners, which is the globalization process, which is China. So one aspect of the crisis is that the responses to crisis, usually there are responses, but usually take place within a neoliberal frame. And then from our perspective and with our lens, we would argue that the far right, and Trump is probably the best example, and also um, um, George Bush senior and during the Gulf War in the 90s, when he said um, um, during the war, um, um, decla the declaration of the new world order, when he was at the Rio conference in, uh, in, in 92, when he said, yeah, we need global environmental politics, but the American way of life is not at disposal. Yeah? And the new world order is under the dominance of the United States. So in our words, the far right is defending, protecting the imperial mode of living. This is the promise, of course, in other words. Yeah? But this is the promise and it, it, it is um, kind of fertile on a field which is neoliberalized, which, where people have fear uh, and others. But we would go a step further. We would argue it's the far right, but it's far... Uh, throughout society that, of course, then with other uh, demands, with other um, uh, claims, the imperial mode of living is defended. 
So for example, and this is from a progressive perspective, um, a very, very ambiguous and, 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 and a challenge, um, if you like, that the trade unions, in fact, are also, if it comes to, the de the, to defending jobs, defending uh, the, the industries in, in, in the global north, uh, are also protecting, if you like, in a sense, the imperial mode of living and saying, okay, we want uh, imports of certain products, but the high productivity, the core industry remains uh, in the global north. So, again, not with, with the term of imperial mode of living, but we have also among uh, conservative, liberal, and um, even social democratic forces um, um, a reference to the imperial mode of living to defend it um, in, yeah, I leave it here. We'll spell out a bit more about the supposed alternative to the far right, which is has sometimes been termed progressive neoliberalism or multicultural neoliberalism that defends globalization of free markets, you know, in contrast to at least part of the right. What sort of alternative, if any, is offered by this kind of neoliberalism? Yeah, there, there is an alternative in the sense that they are uh, globalized, that they are cosmopolitan, if you like, in a cultural sense, that they are open. Um, it's um, um, not only an elite orientation, also, if you like, the middle classes, the upper middle classes uh, can live well in the um, in um, under conditions of progressive neoliberalism and respective policies. And even uh, workers, if they have if a decent life, a decent income, they can live better and maybe they are not attracted by nationalist or far-right um, um, ideologies. But our argument would be precisely that also progressive neoliberalism is defending the imperial mode of living. It's not questioning um, a, a form of to, to reproduce societies, to have policies, to, to create forms of mobility, yeah? um, uh, automobile-centric, um, flight-centric, to have a certain um, um, global food system, which Philip McMichael, the sociologist, calls the food from nowhere. Yeah, that it it's doesn't matter where the food comes from; it must be cheap uh, and, and good and available. So we would argue that the free market globalist perspective is also promoting an imperial mode of living with other with other um, means, with other instruments, with other world perspectives. But it's not as liberal as it um, pretends to be. It's also reproducing the violence of globalized capitalism. It's reproducing that people in Bangladesh or in Mexico have to work at um, very, very um, um, under very bad um, working conditions. That um, nature and the resources are um, extracted and over-extracted and brought into the global north or via China, where the the, um, the products are produced and then they are exported to the global north. So. Of course, there is a difference between progressive neoliberalism and the far right, but if we look at from an angle of the imperial of living, there are also many similarities. Yes, yeah, so just to draw it out, so you're arguing that for the far right, they want to defend the imperial mode of living as is, and that for that so-called progressive neoliberalism, that they recognize there's a crisis, but their answer is to just sort of modernize the imperial mode of living. Tell us what that, that looks like. Yeah, we distinguish in debates on uh, how to deal with the ecological crisis, we can distinguish between, a, let's say, a position of business as usual, which is close to the far right or to the ultra neoliberals, and progressive neoliberalism would consider and would recognize, as you say, the ecological crisis and other dimensions of the crisis. And they would say, okay, we need to modernize capitalism 
or the economy, they don't uh, use usually not the concept of capitalism. We need uh, green growth, not, not the traditional growth. We need um, a modernization of um, um, the fleet, of, um, we need electro um, uh, automobility, um, um, we need um, other um, sources um, beyond the fossil fuel uh, energy, etc. etc. And so they, they have more the idea to change the society and not to leave it as it is. This is the difference to the far right, but as um, not questioning the imperial mode of living. To give you uh, an example, if now the debate on social ecological transformation or the Green New Deal, which is the more the political term, is um, of course there are many um, proposals to have more public investment, to have a stronger role of the state, to to have more renewable energies. But if it's it, if it does not go so far to question the working conditions, the north-south relations, uh, where the resources come from, when this is not questioned, the improvement of living is maintained and at the same time it's, um, um, of course, it's modernized. And I would like to come back to one uh, thought um, and one question of you before. Our book, unconsciously, this was not our intention, but when the book came out, one uh, contribution, one important contribution was um, in Germany and Austria, to intervene into a very, very important split within the left. I don't know how is it in the United States or in Canada, but in Europe, the split which goes through the left is to have more an internationalist uh, um, position and to, um, to really rethink how the global economy, how resource flows are organized. But we have also a very strong position, Sarah Wagenknecht in Germany um, is um, an important um, figure for this, to argue, if we are too open, if we are too cosmopolitan, if we are, if you like, too progressive, and we overburden ordinary people, and we risk maybe their jobs. So we have to act primarily at the national level and to defend social rights at the national level and not to think too global. Because if we don't do it, people might vote for the far right, for the AfD in Germany, for the FPÖ in, in Austria. So. There is no clear-cut solution, but um, we found it quite interesting that when we got the feedback um, uh, on the German publication, many says, okay, these two authors, uh, Ulrich Brandt and Markus Wissen, are very much in this line of new internationalism to rethink the ecological crisis or to consider the, the depths of the ecological crisis. And others argue, but you are downplaying, you are forgetting that we have also in Germany a deep crisis. And if we don't deal with it at the national scale, we will lose people um, and they will vote for the far right. And I want to ask you uh, more about that line of criticism in a moment, but I should say that I'm speaking with Ulrich Brand. He's professor at the University of Vienna, and he's the co-author with Marcus Wissen of The Imperial Mode of Living, Everyday Life and the Ecological Crisis of Capitalism, which is published by Verso. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So one of the criticisms that was leveled at your book when it came out, which prompted a, a great deal of uh, response from those within the left, but one criticism centered around this question of class and posited that you create the danger of, when talking about an imperial mode of living in the North, of lumping the CEO of a northern multinational corporation with its workers. In other words, that by seeing things 
primarily in terms of the global north and the global south and the mode of living in the global north, that it erases or obscures the class divisions that are so pronounced in the global north. How do you respond to that criticism? This was a strong criticism and we were surprised because we um, are quite explicit in the book that, of course, the imperial mode of living is a structural category of, to indicate the dominant patterns of production and consumption and their normalization, the invisibilization of the violence caused by the production of cars, of cell phones, of t-shirts, of meat, etc., etc. But you are right, the book was perceived by many as a North-South book. And since we are recognized and known in the German-speaking world as internationalists, and of course we wrote also other stuff, um, people might have put the emphasis on that. However, um, it's, this is not the case. We, we want to bring into the debate the North-South um, dimension, but we are very explicit, and in further work we even, even deepened this argument, but I would say also in the book we are very explicit that, and we call it hierarchization, when we call about the mechanisms of the imperial mode of living, that the imperial mode of living, historically, since colonialism, if you like, is based on class structures, is based on racism, we call it also um, the... Um, La colonialidad de poder, the coloniality of power, with um, with um, Anibal Quijano, it's based also on a gendered uh, division of labor, of a gendered uh, social structure. But we focus on class, and we argue that um, with the term of elsewhere, that people live better in Berlin, in Vienna, in uh, New York, in the Bay Area, not only because they can consume products and services produced in the global south or with a cheap nature, but also produced in their own country. If we think uh, of care work, if we think of um, the, the um, conditions, the, the working conditions in meat factories or elsewhere, this is also a precondition of the uh, imperial mode of living. So we have this um, double perspective, if you like, and we were a bit surprised. And maybe this has to do that half a year before us, another scholar, um, Stefan Lessenich, a sociologist from Munich, um, published a book very close to our topic. We, are, we know each other quite well. And he focuses very much in the tradition of dependency theory um, on the North-South relation. And he says, in a, in a sense, if the, the uh, water glass is um, fuller in the North, it's, it's more empty in the Global South. And we try to avoid this argument with, um, um, yeah, with many, many examples, but also with our point. The hierarchization, the class structure is the basis of the imperial mode of living, and the imperial mode of living is reproducing, is prolonging certain class structures. Sure, and of course, the countries of the global south are themselves also divided by class, and quite different from one another. You have some like China that are economic powerhouses, and others like Bolivia that are sites of tremendous resource extraction. And then, obviously, there are class divisions within uh, the countries of the South, the global South, including countries like India, where you have a substantial middle uh, as well as upper class that consumes in patterns that are very reminiscent of the northern mode of living. How do you make sense of these differences and how do you see that imperial mode of living being relevant to the more affluent in the global South? Yeah, this is an, a central topic for us. We argue, um, I come back to the question of the affluence, that since the colonialism, the imperial mode of living is very present, even colonialism is 
to install the imperial mode of living. And the changes within society, I work and I do research on Latin America. Yeah, I'm quite familiar with what is happening there. And um, colonialism changed much more the societies in the global south, in the colonies, than in, in, uh, in the capitalist centers. Yeah, there it was at the beginning for centuries a question of state resources of the upper classes, um, uh, etc. But it, it was really um, changing social structures and killing many people in the global south. And coming back to your question, um, yeah, we have a chapter on China and we um, and, and of course there are many, many um, references to Latin America and we argue exactly like this. And this is very uncomfortable when we present the book and give talks in Latin America that the urban middle classes and the affluent, the, the oligarchy, of course, but then also the urban middle classes are living in the important mode of living. If they um, increase their income, it's very attractive to buy a car, to have more travels, etc., etc., and and this is also a, a, a topic for for the especially for the so-called emerging uh, economies. There's a very interesting concept uh, recently developed by two younger colleagues from Jena, from the University of Jena, um, Anna Landher and Jakob Graf, and they say, uh, working on Chile, the complement of the externalization mechanisms of the global north. Uh, within the impairment of living is the internalization society of the global south. They say the dependency of the world market, but also the dependency of certain images of progress, of well-being, of the American way of life, very present in, in, in Latin America, of course, is um, stabilizing class structures, is stabilizing um, um, property relations because um, the state in Chile, the, the discourses of progress are in Brazil and Argentina and elsewhere, is saying, okay, we have the chance if we are um, we are a dependent economy, but we can export copper, we can export uh, fruits, etc., etc., to the United States and elsewhere, and um, so we we will have development, and with the development, everybody will will live better off. And this is also for the upper middle classes a real experience. If the prices are higher, if the demand from the world market, from China, the U.S., and Europe. Um, is higher for the for the commodities on the global south. There is more income. There is more space for the state to distribute the rents, and um, this is also then the experience of an imperial mode of living. And I would say, and this is also maybe an success success of our book. It's translated now into Chinese, uh, Korean, Japanese, but also it just came out in Portuguese and Spanish, and um, that it it um, helps to understand that. Um, it's not only about U.S. imperialism or European imperialism. It's not only about transnational companies. It's not only about the own oligarchy. Of course, it's also very much about this, but it's also about a reproduction of, um, of a mode of living. It's a reproduction of certain dispositives of, if you like, attractive understandings where society should, um, should, should develop to. And to, to um, close this um, remark, we think that one of the um, causes, one of the reasons why this book was so successful for the moment in the German-speaking uh, world is that um, we don't moralize. We, we criticize the very strong um, uh, um, um, direction, the very strong tendency within um, sustainability studies to individualize responsibility, to say the end consumer is the main responsible and if he or she um, goes green, everything will be fine. Yeah. So it's, it's a very strong discourse of the green economy, of the sustainability um, discourse to say, okay, the consumer is 
who, who takes the, the, the last decision? And we say, no, it's about structures. It's about capitalism. It's about capitalist power relations. And this non-moralizing, yeah, I, I want to um, emphasize that, of course, there is, um, we should be conscious about our own living and about the possibilities where we can really go for alternatives. But we cannot say to ordinary people, so go for green, go for green consumption, and this will resolve the problems. And this no moralizing is probably one of the strengths of the book. Yes, and that moralism is also very strong, I think, in the environmental movement and even on the left in the United States, that places where you see uneven development and the uneven distribution of resources, that things ended up being put at the feet of people as individuals. And therefore, the politics moves away from the structural critique of capitalism to questions of individual consumption. Um, I wanted to ask you also about how when you look at the imperial mode of living in the global north, but as you say, with its sort of deep ramifications for the global south, how do you also understand waged and unwaged work? Uh, this question of social reproduction, which is a, a question that Marxist feminists particularly highlight about the necessity of unwaged work for the reproduction of capitalism, including consumption. Yes, we highlight this in the book quite strongly, and uh, we discussed the manuscript with um, feminist colleagues from feminist economics and feminist social science um, in advance. We had some workshops where uh, the manuscripts were um, um, discussed, and um, I think this is, um, from our perspective, uh, quite strong. It's not a feminist book, but it's a book which um, um, takes seriously the intersectionality of domination of uh, power relations and power structures. And we argue, uh, if you like, historically with Rosa Luxemburg, who argued um, capitalism needs non-capitalist milieus, needs for its own reproduction spaces that are non-waged, which is um, nature as a, a gratis a productive force, but it's also unwaged labor, and unwaged labor is mainly done by women, uh, um, and um, yeah, even more women in the, in the global south. So I think this is quite strong, and we would argue that um, the imperial mode of living is not only the formal economy, the formal economy gives the dynamics, but it needs these um, gratis, um, uh, um, unpaid, uh, productive force, which is um, female labor, which is uh, nature. And um, when we come afterwards to alternatives, we think it's crucial to have this in mind and to, to um, um, question a bit this focus of many leftist forces that it's about the change of um, wage labor, the working class, um, and uh, the, the organized forces. And we argue, no, a change a deep change of the mode of living has a lot to do with everyday practices and also the question of justice comes um, through everyday practices and then we are in the midst of the fear of reproduction. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'm speaking with the co-author of The Imperial Mode of Living, Everyday Life and the Ecological Crisis of Capitalism. That's published by Verso. And I'm speaking with Ulrich Brandt. He is the co-author with Marcus Wissen of this book, as well as The Limits to Capitalist Nature. Uh, both are scholar activists. So I wanted to turn and ask you about the historical origins of the imperial mode of living. Uh, when 
would you date its emergence and what forces uh, led to it? In debates about the book, many say um, the imperial mode of living already was a part of the Roman Empire. Yeah, because the Roman Empire was also imperial and it was an empire, it was quite imperial. And we say, yes, this is uh, true. But since it's a book about capitalism and to understand better the capitalist structures and capitalist dynamics, we start more modestly, if you like, with um, colonialism, with the um, conquest of, uh, of um, uh, um, South America. And um, we argue that at the very beginning in the 16th, 17th century, it was crucial. And then with um, slave trade um, from Africa to, um, to the Americas, um, it was crucial to, um, to link the, the, the world under the main interest, under the main dynamics of capitalism, which is um, the accumulation of capital, which is to produce um, surplus value and to make profits. Very, very simple. But to use also, if necessary, open violence. Yeah? Capitalism is not a peaceful thing. If it's necessary, until today we know this, um, slavery is part of uh, global capitalism. Then we argue that in the 18th century, with the expansion of capitalism, with the first steps, if you like, um, of industrial uh, capitalism, um, the imperial mode of living entered slowly into um, into the societies of the global north, as I said before, it was always very, very present in the in, in the colonies, in the societies of the global south. But it entered into the societies of the global north, and um, became also attractive among the upper classes, the upper middle classes. If you go to Vienna, you have the coffee houses, you have these experiences of people who had money to distinguish themselves from the workers um, via certain products um, and, and uh, to live better off. But also there is this fantastic study from James Walvin um, um, on the, the global history of sugar. Also we, we can show that uh, sugar is a very important um, product uh, for energy for the workers who had to go to the factories and to, to, to make their living and to live and to get, to get the energy. And um, it's only two chapters, and we are not historians, it's not a historical book, but we want to make the argument um, also to look at history. And then we come to a phase which for us is crucial in the constitution of the imperial mode of living and in the constitution of the province we have today, which we call in critical social science Fordism, or the post-war period, which means that uh, after the Second World War, starting in the United States, already in the 1920s, that mass production, mass consumption, aspects of the welfare state of, uh, and also of an interventionist state, yeah, which is not what is not any longer liberal capitalism with a weak state, but the state really intervened into the economy, yeah, the, 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 the New Deal from Roosevelt, for example. In this phase, and this is also for progressive forces, very ambiguous, in this phase, the living standard of people, also the security of people in their everyday life with more permanent contracts, with um, a good representation via the trade unions, etc., uh, etc., et um, improved incredibly in the first time of history. My parents yeah, lived so differently from their parents in, from the 50s and 60s onwards. This is what we call yeah, Fordism or the golden age of capitalism, but with, with all um, um, problems. The problems were that it was patriarchal, it was racist, it was very uneven in the North-South um, um, relations, and it was also ecologically very destructive. So what we uh, call the, the great acceleration 
it was uh, the term um, coined by Will Steffen and others, the Great Acceleration means that since the 1950s, all the indicators, um, GDP, uh, population growth, but also the use of resources, the use of energy, goes up heavily. And this is the, the, the cause of the environmental problems we are facing today. So we argue the impairment of living has a long history, but it comes to itself, if you like, in the post-war period as the first phase. The second phase, we argue, is um, in the 90s, the so-called third um, phase of globalization. The third first phase of globalization was in the 70s, the opening of the markets, the financial markets, the commodity markets. The second phase was um, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the, um, 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 the, the opening of Eastern Europe. And the third phase of globalization in the 90s, of course, is the rise of China, India, um, the emerging economies. And if we look at the numbers of um, material use, of energy use since the 90s and particularly since the 2000s, during this phase of globalization, um, the, the global resource use explodes. And again, this leads to an enormous increase of the, stand, um, of the living standards of many people in China, India, Brazil, etc., etc., but again at the cost of nature at the cost of emissions, the, the, the greenhouse gas emissions, but also, and this is very important from a progressive perspective, the imperial mode of living as a structure does not give people so many alternatives. They are forced to live in the imperial mode of living. This is the, the ambiguous thing. We come from a Marxist traditions. We think in contradictions, in ambiguities, and we argue, of course, the imperial mode of living is enhancing the life chances of a people, but at the same time, it restricts alternative because people are kind of forced into a specific mobility system to use a car. If you live, if you live in, in the United States, in many, many places, you need a car because you don't have public transport. You are um, kind of um, within the system and it's difficult to overcome it. I wanted to ask you um, a bit more about the trajectory you were describing of the rise of the imperial mode of living, its intensification with Fordism in the post-war period, uh, especially in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But then Fordism came to a crisis. You know, you were describing how during that time, unions were strong and consumption went up. And then you described in the 1990s another expansion of consumption. But I wanted to ask you if you could spell out for us what happened there, because, of course, there was a weakening of labor, the power of labor, especially in a place like the United States, but, you know, even in throughout Europe. What allowed for the second phase of the expansion of this mode of living, given that in many places wages were falling and the power of labor was weakened? This is an important point and I have two answers. The first is that we argue in the book that at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, there was a window of opportunity to create alternatives to the imperial mode of living. If we think about the hippie movement, the ecological movement, the peace movement, the feminist movements, the questioning of the everyday discipline of Fordism to wake up in the morning, to go to the factory, to have one job during the whole life, etc., etc. So we don't romanticize it. We know that it was at the edges of the societies, but it was a very relevant um, change. We call it window of opportunity until the 70s. But then in the crisis of Fordism, which was also caused by these movements, not only by the, um, by the um, um, 
decrease of productivity and of profits, the answer of dominant forces was neoliberalism. It was precisely to weaken the alternative forces and, and to weaken also those who represent uh, the, the workers, the trade unions. And so aspects of this liberation movements of the social movements were also integrated into neoliberalism via um, yeah, um, more flexibilization, to have more self-control, to have more self-discipline and not so much the discipline um, um, coming from outside. But um, we would argue, and this is important for today, that we can learn from these, um, uh, from this time for today, how um, a new imaginary, a new self-understanding of society can emerge in a moment of crisis. We shouldn't remember that already in at the beginning of the 70s, yeah, with the Club of Rome, limits to growth study, but also with the environmental movement, with the critique of nuclear power plants, etc., etc. There was also a critique of um, um, uh, of how society deals with the environment, how society appropriates nature, that it, this is in a very destructive way. And today we have, in some respects, a similar uh, constellation. The second aspect of your question is that we argue, again, not consciously, but as an ambiguity of the existing, that the imperial mode of living, in a moment when the, the, the income of the workers decreases, when the living conditions of the workers are worsened, that the imperial mode of living at least um, in parts help to stabilize the work, the living conditions. So Walmart, if you like, is securing a certain um, living standard of people who are losing uh, income, who are, um, who are worse off when it comes to income and the job, but the access to global resources, to global labor force, which makes the products cheaper, um, helps a bit to stabilize um, the reproduction of, of the workers. So, but it's very important. We don't argue that people want this consciously. This comes back to our structural perspective, but people are caught into this. So if Walmart and produces 80% of its products in China. This is not the decision of the consumers. This is a profit-oriented capitalist decision to make more profits when, when we go to China. Ulrich Brand is my guest. He is the co-author with Marcus Wissen of The Imperial Mode of Living, Everyday Life and the Ecological Crisis of Capitalism. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, let me ask you then, springboarding from your comments about how in the crisis of Fordism in the 1970s, this uh, crisis of capitalism, which was also a crisis for workers, that there were some openings or moments or prefiguration of what alternatives to the dominant mode of living, this resource and emissions intensive uh, mode of consumption in the global north, that alternatives appeared that might inspire different ways of living. And you and your co-author Marcus Wissen in your book do talk about ways of overcoming this imperial mode, drawing on sort of more utopian strains than, as earlier you mentioned, the way that neoliberalism would shore up the imperial mode. This is a question of overcoming it. And you explicitly reject green capitalism, which seems finally on offer uh, in a place like the United States. What instead do you think would 
show itself as having the potential for a different mode of living that would not be based on these deep inequalities between global north and south as well as within the global north and within the global south. Yes, I think this is a very, very important argument in our book to reject the promise of green capitalism or uh, the formal term, of course, is green economy. Nobody identifies itself as a green capitalist, but to push the green economy, to push the European Green Deal, uh, whatever, which is very different from the Green New Deal uh, by, uh, by um, Ocasio-Cortez and, and others. So our point is um, coming from also from a um, tradition um, by Antonio Gramsci, thinking how consent is created within society and the improvement of living is very crucial to this, but also how the powerful forces are responding to crisis and to crises. And we argue with a term um, uh, um, developed by Gramsci with a passive revolution. A passive revolution means that the elites see the problems. They see today the ecological crisis, but they respond in their terms. And in their term means green investment, a green state, without questioning the imperial mode of living, without questioning the growth imperative, um, without questioning the global um, competitiveness and global competition, without questioning the North-South uh, divide, and without questioning the class structures within the US uh, and, and, and around the world. So, but this is a very powerful discourse. It's not the business as usual discourse. It's not the far right discourse, uh, just let it be as it, it was, but we have to change capitalism. And if we look at the studies, um, Marcus and I work on this, um, um, about uh, on transformation, the, the elites are very conscious about the deep problems we are, uh, we are in. When you go through the program of the European Green Deal, the mostly used word is transform, to transform. Yeah, the transformation. So they have an, a sense of the deep crisis of capitalism, but they say we know how to respond. And this is our response is green growth, green investment, etc. And we argue, and our term in the eighth chapter of the book is a solidary mode of living, yeah, against the imperial mode of living, um, that it must go beyond capitalism. Of course, in, in a sense, as a strategic horizon that we shouldn't claim, okay, tomorrow now we are anti-capitalist, everybody, and we, we overrule uh, uh, capitalism or over, um, go away, but to, to orient struggles, the concrete struggles against pipelines for another energy system, for another mobility system, for another food system, how these very concrete conflicts and struggles have a potential to go beyond the profit um, orientation beyond, beyond the growth orientation and beyond, and this is heavy, beyond power relations. So fossil fuel capital is still extremely powerful, much more in the United States than in Europe. And our point is first to look at these very concrete conflicts, to make sense of them and to ask always, um, not, if, not from outside, not as academics, but um, in the struggles itself, how we can, how we can identify the, the danger of, of a green capitalism, yeah, to be co-opted, many struggles are co-opted, how to, how to, um, to resist to this co-option, and then how to, to, to go beyond. The second is, um, coming back to the 70s, neoliberalism's promise was that the market, that private capital, is better than the state and the public. And our argument is no, what we even learn now in the coronavirus uh, crisis, we need a strong state, a, a transparent 
public, democratically responsible state, not the state of capital, but a state of people which um, secures the public, which secures the, the living conditions of the everyday, which secures public transport, a good health system, a good educational system, which is a second aspect. And a third aspect, our argument is not to do less of the same, to praise individual abstinence, but to create something differently, which is, I think, very, very important. A degrowth does not mean we go back to 2005 yeah, and then we have less resource consumption, but to really um, fight for a very different system of mobility, of communication, of food, etc., etc. Do you see social movements that in some ways are prefiguring the kind of changes that you see? Because as you just mentioned, the kind of politics that shaped around the idea that we just need to scale back our standard of living can be pretty problematic in societies that may be wealthy, but in which there are people who really struggle to get by to pay the rent, to be able to get by from month to month. And so as a vision for the left, for many people, that's not particularly appealing. Are there other movements that you see that, that prefigure what you're talking about, something different, something to, if you'll excuse the term, transformative? Yes, I, I see them. And um, to, to, to get um, to the point, our point is, yes, to scale, scale back a standard of living means to change a standard of living and hopefully not to be dependent from your income, from the money flow. If you have in the Bay Area a good, affordable, secure public transport system and people can um, avoid to have a car, so they avoid to have $300 income per, um, per month or how much it is in, 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 in the Bay Area um, and to have a good and reliable tra public transport. This means to, to um, if it's publicly organized, not to be any longer capitalist in a very concrete sense. And we go, if you go to a health system, if you don't have to put your credit card on the counter to get um, a health service, but to have a good public health system organized by a state in a transparent way, this means not to be dependent, not to save money for the case that I, um, I get ill. Um, people who struggle should, of course, have a decent life and have a decent income yeah, without any question. But another society should overcome the dependency of people and the dependency of a good living um, from the income, because this, this is capitalism. Yeah. So what, is, what are the public provisions? What are the, the good conditions of a solidary mode of living? So our, our under idea of action is not the individual action of a different consumption, but it's a political action to create the very conditions of the health system, of the mobility system, of the food system. And a, a brief remark on countries of the Global South, because we are all, always um, asked and criticized hey, folks, um, maybe degrowth is valuable for the global north or the solidary mode of living, but in the global south, people are poor and need education and water, so they have to grow. And our answer is, and again, I work on Latin America, no, the conditions of development in the global south are exploitative, capitalist, oligarchic, and they are a promise, but um, they promise the people become part of, of the capitalist market, become part of capitalist consumerism when you are in the middle class in Sao Paulo or in Buenos Aires. And we would also argue 
Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo, Mexico City, but also the countryside also needs good public transport, also needs a good health system. And the promise in those countries is very often from the liberals and the, and the right wing forces. So we need development that people have more income. And the, the leftist answer would be and is, of course, in Latin America and elsewhere. No, we need a reconstitution of society to be less dependent from income flows, from money, etc., etc. And the first part of your question, where I see the social movements, I would argue, um, yes, if the social movements, for example, we have in Vienna a very interesting movement, which is called um, System Change, Not Climate Change, which is exactly questioning, and, and Vienna, the Red Vienna, has a long tradition of a good public transport system, but the dominance, the predominance of the cars in Vienna is stupid. It's incredible that the local state, the national state, the whole mobility system is still privileging cars in a city as Vienna. So the movements, the radical movements say, what is a city liberated from cars, liberated from the force to, to have a car, from the status orientation to have a car? So these movements, I would say, are part of this, um, uh, of an emerging solidarity mode of living. A last remark. We would, um, we, we focus very much on social movements as incubators, as very important agents of, um, of a different society. But we also would argue that the state, as I said, a democratic, transparent, popular state with its resources, with its legal capacities, with its knowledge capacities is key to create a solidary mode of living. So we would, we would not go only for social movements, they are so very important, but we think we should also, and the, the, let's say the scale of change, the scale of transformation is so huge, is so uh, immense that we cannot afford to say, okay, the state is just the state of the capitalists, the state of the oligarchy. We need a struggle on the terror of the state and lastly, also on the terror of the very economy. Ulrich Brand, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Thank you, Sasha. Ulrich Brand is co-author with Marcus Wissen of The Imperial Mode of Living, Everyday Life and the Ecological Crisis of Capitalism, which is published by Verso. Both were active in the global justice movement and currently with the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, and they're both co-authors of The Limits to Capitalist Nature. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. KPFA is America's original community radio station. And for more than 73 years, we've been an unmistakable part of our community's fabric. Since the dawn of FM radio, KPFA has been funded by your nickels and dimes. Listener supported, listener sponsored. During our fall fund drive, we fell short of our goal. And now we need you to help us close the gap. If you have not donated to KPFA recently, please take a quick moment and make your charitable contribution today online at kpfa.org. Our thank you gifts are still available until the end of the week. Be a part of this historic fabric by visiting kpfa.org and chipping in. Your community truly thanks you. Jack Hirschman. 
And that people, both older and younger than you, a billion strong, will say, we don't want you to make war anymore, anywhere on Earth. If you do, we will stop you and your weapons of mass destruction without even a shot being fired. We're the majority. You're an unruly child. Go to the corner and learn your lesson. Then, America, finally, you'll be free. Storytelling for social change on KPFA. You're listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org.